Hello, my name is Christina, and thank you for checking in to the Humphrey Rudeau Seas. This is a podcast where our guests and I talk about our original characters, the good, the bad, and the self-inserts. And guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jack, he, him, pronouns, uh, and I uh, GM'd a long-running campaign (laughs) called Contract Riders. Uh, mm-hmm, and now mm-hmm. it's extremely over, and the bad guys of it are all deranged weirdos, and I'm here to talk about them. <laughs> so, for listeners uh, of the show, of for, for people who have listened to Wayward for a while, this is the conclusion of Contract Writers, um, because unlo- unless y'all decide to pick up Contract Writers in, like, masks or something, <laughs> um, <laughs> like you said, the campaign has been over for... Six months, I think? Uh, well, we're coming up on the second anniversary of it starting. Uh, uh-huh. And, which is also the anniversary of it ending properly. And then we did the uh, the epilogue movie, and that was in October. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, nine months now. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, so, um, I guess we should go ahead and get started, because I think we have a couple of different uh, villains to talk about here. Yeah. So, um... Best place to start then is probably um, as someone who was GMing a tabletop game. How do you like? How do you start coming up with villains for your players to defeat <laughs> and well, be foils to? It's a combination of collaborative storytelling, listening to my players and their concepts, and um, what's it? and the other thing is having a sense of what I, I want to say. When Contract Riders began in its early planning stages, we only had a little bit to go on. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a large number of players, and so I wanted to mm-hmm. have some instigating antagonism to make sure that fights and things weren't pile-ons. And all my players were on similar footings in terms of themes and like how much stress they wanted their characters to go through and everything. So I had a lot to mm-hmm. work with. Mm-hmm. Um I'd say about half of the major antagonists are derived from uh, NPCs and family connections and things like that that my players introduced either during character creation or as the story went on. Mm-hmm. And about half I brought down from fiat to fulfill important or necessary roles. Da- Real um, quick, down from fiat? Like, I just came up with them. I just put them in like, oh, okay. you know, like okay. a regular, like a regular, you know. Gotcha. I've never heard that phrase before, but now yeah. I know what it means. Yeah, authorial fiat, yeah. Yeah. So, um, the very first, I guess, before anyone even had their character sheets out, the very first antagonist was the common rider, which mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. like, it was part of the fun little kayfabe that happened a lot in our campaign, where mm-hmm. um, every single player would sometimes know sort of the emotional arc of something long before we played it out. Uh, <laughs> where, um, yeah. because, because we're all so familiar with the tropes we're, we're each other riffing on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I did a little post-it note doodle 
of an extremely traditionally designed Kamen Rider character. And I said, this is the greatest hero of Elysium, which is the science fiction post-apocalypse city where Contact Riders is set. Yes, he's been apocalyptic a hero Australia. Forever. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's the hero of the common man. I didn't have to say anything because everyone in the group, and I wouldn't have played with him if this wasn't true, There was some that there was some stuff going on with him that was, uh, with the common Rider, that was probably not above board, that there was some sinister or tragic edge to the character <laughs> um, part. And, you know, so that was mm-hmm. one thing. Then, of course, Marianne Chaumet, which is uh, Lux, Roger, Brendan's character's mom. Uh, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that that her her, you know, sinister elements come straight from Brendan. Um, Unsurprising. Yeah, no, it's Brendan it, likes him a villain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and understanding and it was you know sort of my job to figure out how do i embody the characterization that brendan came up with and wanted to interact with how do i synthesize this with my storytelling needs and the storytelling needs of other characters Mm -hmm. stuff like that um and then there were characters uh the same thing with with sen and lexley who sam introduced as uh as a you know mm-hmm. an irritation <laughs> but uh <laughs> who if you've listened to the long saga of contract writers you might know ended up being the final boss after he achieved godhood through an extremely convoluted plan yes um the other principal characters that i think i'm going to touch on are got have got to be um omega aka douglas abe who was a, a major character also in in hannah's story arc and Anka, who is um, a real uh, piece of crap character that was just sort of me making fun of a type of guy at uh, for an extended period of time before I got emotionally attached and nobody else did. <laughs> Look, as hard as it can be to remember sometimes, especially depending on how invested you are in your tabletop campaign, like the person GMing also needs to have fun at the table. Oh, like, of course, of if- course. If they're not have if the person who is organizing and planning the game is not having fun, then yeah. no one's gonna have fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, one of the um, but I guess like the big shared motivation is in in designing these characters is contract writers is something that started in twenty twenty. Yes, when in twenty twenty. Pre, Pre-COVID or, uh, oh, or the, well, after well COVID? Well, into COVID. Well, it, it was ah. August. It's like planning yeah. in July, starting in August. Uh, it Oof-da. was a schedule that only happened because no one was doing anything or going anywhere. <laughs> we coordinated across three time zones. That doesn't happen outside of a, a global health crisis. Yes. Contract Riders is something that grew out of a very particular socio-political environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Product of the times. Very much a product of its time. Um, And out of very specific sort of social, emotional, uh, ecological anxieties, I think. And there was a degree to which for everybody, it was, you know, a power fantasy and an exorcism and an opportunity to think about and talk about relationships Mm -hmm. to power, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. relationships to authority, things like that. It's about the catharsis. Yeah, for sure. And a big part of that was trying to dial in what sort of ideologies antagonists would have. There's this thing a lot of mass popular media does, 
where they'll take an, a character that they need to be an antagonist. Um, and they'll mm-hmm. staple some left-of-center political position to them. And then say, ah, but he kills babies, so his ideology is invalid. When his ideology does not at any point actually involve uh, killing women and children. It's just a, a thing he does to make him bad. Uh, Killmonger is a classic example of this. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, I super didn't want to do that. But also, I did <laughs> Yeah. But also, like, I didn't want to just make the whole thing a sort of preaching to the choir, uh, let's, let's do a communism about it situation either. And so figuring out ideologies and, and points of view that are real, both in terms of the just overtly fascist characters, but also characters mm-hmm. who had more eccentric or almost science fictional perspectives on things. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give them mm-hmm. a grounding and a realism. And the way that I did that was asking, what are my most, me, just me, Jack, what are my most juvenile power fantasies? <laughs> and try and say, all right, this stupid instinct or this this petty desire mm-hmm. or... Mm-hmm. This idea that I know is bad, but which is like attractive in moments of despair or frustration. Yes. Let's let's take a look at those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And justifying the means and all that. So a big nasty one, especially uh, given the climate themes of the campaign, were, were things like antinatalism. Anti what? Antinatalism, the ideological opposition to childbirth. Okay. Um. As uh, antinatalism, sort of solipsism and isolationism and stuff like that. Um, or, mm-hmm. or just the simple power fantasy of, man, wouldn't it be great if someone just showed up and solved all the problems unilaterally? Yep. Uh, uh, which I think is sort of inexorable from superhero storytelling. So you have to either talk about it or just mm-hmm. or do it straightforwardly one way or another. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. Yeah. So I guess in a semi-chronological order-ish, um, the, mm-hmm. the first antagonist to take on one of these nasty positions is the common Rider. Mm-hmm. Um, his backstory, quickly, is that he wasn't the first superhero in Elysium. He's the second. The first was uh, this his woman's... mentor or protege? It mentors sort of, but it's sort of like um, it's sort of like in The Incredibles, where Mister Incredible says, "You are not affiliated with me." <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sawatari was a woman who got pretty nastily mutated in the same incident that unleashed monsters on Elysium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over you know years and years, she starts regaining control and regaining human appearance and all these things, but she's an isolated unpleasant, uh, extremely depressed person uh, who doesn't have much regard for her own life. Um, yeah. And when Hidemonji, the common writer, he develops, he's like a teenager. He develops this precocious, weird crush on her that's also hero worship. We don't really go into it because it's kind of gross. Um, she's normal yeah. and doesn't reciprocate about it. She's extremely normal about it, but like, uh, <laughs> he's not. And that's like a vital thing. Um but one, her, like, real big sin that she commits in the story is that right mm-hmm. at the end of her life, she decides, 
oh, I am actually going to leverage how he thinks about me for one thing. Uh, and that she was hoping that by saying that, telling her him as mm-hmm. she was about to die as a result of fighting off this monster, human yeah. lives are more important than peace and justice. And that's her message on into history. Mm-hmm. And that's a famous quote from the original Kamen Rider manga or from Kamen Rider Spirits or something like that, or one of the early episodes of the show. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a classic bit of iconography. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was see how everyone inspired by that quote would misunderstand or interpret it with motivated reasoning. Yeah, it's not like an equivalency, but like that, setting that kind of standard is something, like you said, can easily be pivoted into a lot of different viewpoints and extrapolated. Yeah. yeah. What Sawatari kind of meant was, it doesn't matter that it's not fair for me to die or that it's not fair to you to die. Your peace mm-hmm. and your justice is less important than human life. But the way Hidamonji took it, because he was absolutely not prepared to accept her death as anything anywhere near just, was that yeah. the preservation of human life was more important than kindness or equality or any of these other measures that mm-hmm. the, almost the human species as an abstract was priority number one. Yeah. Yeah. And that it did not matter what actions needed to be taken to ensure the survival of humanity. <laughs> yeah. If he had to kill 199 people to keep, to make 200 people get born next year, he'd do it. It was that level of pure, moral calculus which is why he ends up mm-hmm. collaborating with actively eugenicist uh mm-hmm. social darwinist organizations because he does the math and says yep human life's more important than literally any other value there is and that's why you don't do math with human lives y'all <laughs> exactly it's bad you don't do it um uh and it's tricky because I think that sometimes you do have to do math. I think you have to do, get a real reckoning of the consequences of your actions. Mm-hmm. I think when people do math to justify actions rather than to question them, I think okay. that's a big problem. I mean, I, I, obviously you don't have to agree with me. The, the whole thing was sort of an exploration of do I actually even agree with myself? Yeah, but yeah. I, I think that uh, with, with, the, with the common writer, it was very much a case of He's no imagination. He's emotionally stunted at 17 for 150 years. 150 years? <laughs> Something like that. Um, I'm trying to do the math. Uh, Contract Riders is set in 2201. Um, and he's born in, I think, 2081. So he's like 120 years old. Oh and he's my. Been a te- and he's emotionally been a teenager for basically all of it. Y'all get therapy, man. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't think he ever did, but, uh. Yeah, it's a, it's a generic statement meant to apply to. Yeah. We would have fewer villains in, in media if therapy was more widely available. <laughs> yeah. And a real common denominator with a lot of these antagonists is, is how they react to, like, despair or terror. And mm-hmm. Marianne and Doug, who were contemporaries as young writers, like, from Marianne's perspective, Doug and a bunch of other characters were the supporting characters in her magical girl show. Mm-hmm. 
And like so many magical girl shows made in the tw- late 2000s and 2010s, uh, it takes a really dark turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unsurprising. Uh, uh, where about 30 or so years prior to the campaign proper, Marianne and Doug are present uh, along with a couple other characters when they discover that the foundations of Legion, the magic stones that the Kingstones that power yes. the dome and keep the settlement secure and alive are mm-hmm. an extremely finite resource, at least in the way that they're currently being used. Gotcha. Uh, th- I thought you were going to initially say like, oh yeah, this is when they found out that they caused cancer. <laughs> I mean, well, that K-Long is a whole related thing. Um, yes. And it's, it's, it's again, these, these motifs of, of how do you deal with a, a world that, an environment that, is fundamentally hostile, or that's politically hostile or ecologically hostile, uh, how do you live through that? And what happened with both uh, uh, Marianne and and with all the, basically everyone else who fell in what we started to call the trauma hole, uh, <laughs> was that they pretty thoroughly did not deal with it. Some of those characters became sort of let humanity die out, nature take over, kind of, you know, see see where it goes. So, uh, mm-hmm. Marianne became absolutely obsessed with preserving life and lineage, but in this very, you know, eugenicist fascist way where mm-hmm. even her own kids, both her biological kids like Roger and the kids that she, you know, abducted and trained towards uh, her organization, towards Golgum's goals. Yes. Um, and Doug, Doug's a weird case. Um, I almost, I almost want to compare him to like C.S. Lewis or somebody because Doug is like a monarchist in a really weird way. Marianne believes in dynasties. She, Mm -hmm. she, she gets completely bought in on hokum and orientalist mistranslated ancient scriptures that she interprets as being related to real ancient god king civilizations when it's bull roar. And she completely buys yes. into her own hype because she has nothing else to cling to. Doug, as Omega, he sees through all that bullshit, but he agrees on the ends. He also mm-hmm. believes that you need a mighty god king to address the you know existential crisis that the human race is facing. Mm-hmm. But he mm-hmm. also believes that absolutely nobody who wants the job should have it. In- interesting. <laughs> And he particularly absolutely despises Marianne's pers- project of of trying to groom uh, leaders to, you know, be puppets for her ambitions and whatever. He can't stand it, even though he wants every power structure she institutes to be occupied and used as brutally and effectively as is necessary. Um, and as a result, he starts trying to find someone he he thinks would be worthy of the job already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and because of his own narcissism, which everyone has to some degree, I'm not saying that, oh, he's a capital N clinical narcissist, but just because of his own egoism and his, his, and his own sense of empathy, he eventually latches on to Hannah, to contract writer Wyvern. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because she's miserable, powerful, and chronically ill like him. Yeah. And his efforts to sort of convince her to seize power fully for herself are a great, were a lot of fun to play out. To play him out as, as a genuine mentor figure and then reveal him 
as morally decrepit were a lot of fun and were mm-hmm. great to interact with with Joe on in terms of storytelling. But it was also very fun for me that he obviously tremendously is still a hypocrite because even though he doesn't really think he's doing it, he's doing much the same thing Marianne is, creating uh, a puppet figure who duplicates his ideology. Uh, mm-hmm. in a, but for him, he he's washing his hands of the results. And, like, I think that every once in a while, especially if you're dealing with a, a world that feels as out of control and, and a political environment that feels as separated from human dignity as it can feel in the present day, the, yeah. the, the, the notion of, of, like, the Death Note fantasy or these, or these again, super heroic, you know, saviors, it's, it's, very, it's very attractive. And it's the, but obviously, you know, very quickly becomes uh, a, a sort of just abject evil. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's one of those things where, like in in media, we have been so inundated with I'm with heroic narratives where there's like one one person or several people, depending on uh, whether yeah. you're watching like a <laughs> whether you're watching like Justice League. Or One Punch Man or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, we are we are so inundated with narratives where it is people who have incredible powers that I feel like it's, it's divested us from the notions or, like, even from having confidence in the idea that, like, that, like, regular people can do things. Oh, absolutely. And there's also specifically chosen one narratives about like genetic destinies or all those mm-hmm. other things that I just find really detestable. And it was a big part of why um, in Contract Writers, I pivoted every bit of, of predestination and uh, what's the word? Prophecy and made sure it was all just total fraud bull, bull roar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big victims... Of mm-hmm. the whole of of Golgum and all that sort of predestination chosen one stuff is an NPC that basically had to exist as like a a, a toyetic puzzle piece. Um, yeah. Uh, that I made into um, a character that I got overly attached to, uh, and uh, uh, her name is Anka. Uh, mm-hmm. She becomes mm-hmm. contract writer Anka because she only has the one name. Uh, they didn't yes. give her another one uh, when she was being brainwashed from toddlerhood in Golgum School. Yeah, and even her <laughs> name is predipo- is is chosen in order for her to fill a prophesized role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because correct me if I'm wrong, isn't Anka a Latin name, Latin scientific name for it's big cats? Yeah, big cats. Yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, she her her. Common Rider form is, you know, big jungle cats, you know, a mm-hmm, slurry of mm-hmm. them. Uh, and the the metatextual reason she exists is that uh, Joe wanted Hannah to acquire um, powers from jungle cats and horseshoe crabs in order to complete a, a, an homage to Common Rider Black. Mm-hmm. And sh- therefore she needed someone to steal the, the big cat, the jungle cat powers from. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and I thought, all right, Joe has asked me to introduce a character. I'm going to make her regret it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I introduced Anka, who stinks. Um, 
I mean, to a massive uh-huh. degree, she's a huge victim of everything. Yes. Marianne brainwashed her from childhood. Uh, Doug wrote her off as too Golgum to be saved when she was like four. Tons of real nasty stuff. But also, she's profoundly obnoxious, and I don't think anything would have changed that. Because she's the kind of person who wears inappropriate anime sweaters in public. <laughs> it's. It sounds like Onka's the kind of non-player character where it's like... She is specifically in the game to... Like, show... To... I'm gonna say instill sympathy or at least empathy in the player characters because like some of these <laughs> some of these npcs they don't have to be like this but they are because of the way yeah. that things have been <laughs> yeah um anka was heavily inspired by an experience i had at my previous job where mm-hmm. um i my one of my previous jobs was running tabletop games including rpgs and board games for kids and teenagers it was a, you saint. <laughs> it was an after-school program. Um, and there was one teen homeschooled from a, a, a region of Brooklyn that's, uh, very, that's very conservative. Uh, mm-hmm. and, we were obs- and he uh, had a lot of reactionary opinions at age 14, age 15. I mean, a lot of us have reactionary opinions at age 14. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, this is not some big slam on the kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think it was. <laughs> no, uh, but it was interesting and a challenge and, and the result of a lot of patients and a lot of talented co-workers and extremely overpatient kids uh, and peers mm-hmm. that uh, by the end of it, uh, he'd matured tremendously. Good. Um, but I wanted everyone to understand, everyone at my table to understand what it felt like to deal with that obnoxious kid. <laughs> um, uh, and the result was the pettiest, might makes rightsist, uh, self-centered, dumb as a post character, um, <laughs> who's who who's also just a chronic loser, um, and mm-hmm. looking back on it, I'm mm-hmm. not really sure if if she had all that an important role in how the story got told, but I'm very glad she was there because everyone disliked her in exactly the right way. <laughs> But, or please remind me, which way was it that everybody disliked Anka? Well, she's really obnoxious. Um, yes. Uh, she uh, has absolutely no sense of what an appropriate social boundary is. Um, okay, okay. Uh, it's coming and back she's to me. Also, and she's also a violent, stupid fascist. And in, like, mm-hmm. the, the pettiest, most base kind of way. She's not some, she's not like a, a YouTube thinker. She's not, she's a dumb brute. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a, a, a fun character because I had to leave room for the most YouTube talkiest piece of crap later. Long after everything else was done, I sketched out something that sort of resembled an Anka redemption arc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, but even then, she's not the kind of person who develops a comprehensive you know, dignity-focused ideology. Yeah. She, she's the sort of person that maybe, if, you know, she gets to talk to people, you can point her at a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think that there's always going to be people who aren't liberationary leaders and 
and who are obnoxious and are hard to work with and who are get in the way of stuff. But I also didn't want her to get like owned and killed and written off entirely because writing off people entirely, you don't want to do it when you can help it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Writing off things entirely and being a weird YouTube thought leader is more the the premise of the actual final villain. Th- thought um, leader? <laughs> yeah, thought leader. That is a phrase that is new to me. T h o u g h t. Unless you thought you meant I, I thought in case you thought I meant something else. No, it's just, it's just, <laughs> a th- thought leader is a it, it is a phrase that I think is even more serially online than I usually am. <laughs> oh, so. yeah, no, it's really bad. And that's Senin. Because Senin, mm-hmm. Senin Luxley, uh, had maybe the wildest character journey of any non-player character because from a conceptual level, he went from an, a joke about office middle managers to a scathing critique of office middle managers. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, and along the way, he achieved godhood. Not good. Not good. Um, Senin originally was introduced as a character who existed to just torment Sean, to torment Dolman in like really petty ways and <laughs> and highlight how miserable Dolman had made himself and all this other stuff. You can listen to the Dolman cast. Uh, yeah. I recommend yeah. everyone listen to the Dolman cast. Um, but what became apparent to me as the campaign was moving along and we reached around a halfway point and I had to realize who do, does everybody punch at the end and why does that help <laughs> was that yes. my original conceptions of who the bad guy was, was not going to be interesting. My earliest ideas for the final boss were that it would be a sort of tulpa construct of bad ideas. Mm-hmm. And as I went along, I started thinking about, oh, this will be a funny trope. What if I did a, a, a joke about Ultraman here? Oh, Ultra, <laughs> Ultra 7's a show. What if it was Ultra Senin? And that was a dumb pun. And I you know, <laughs> kept that pun in the back of my head for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because as we went along, we revealed that Senin wasn't just a middle manager, but that he was of an office, but yeah, he was middle managing a lot of events. Yes. He'd conspired to put Dolman in a position where Dolman's resentment and could activate something called the the KT Strata and create a, a monstrous and powerful new form. He yes. was working to undermine, manipulate, and exploit all the stuff going on with Golgum. And what the motivation from eventually became was a deep distrust of institutions. Mm-hmm. And Senin took it a step further. Senin's ultimate ideology that, that we reached over a period of time of, of character conceptualization was that he does not believe that human interaction can ever be a net good. <sighs> Which is very much, to not belabor the joke, a middle manager perspective. The whole point of, of, of middle management and bureaucracy is to abstract away human interactions to make it something manageable. And planned. And what Senin's ultimate goal was to do was his, you know, his supernatural goal was to create a world where human misery is, is abolished by making it impossible for any human being to have an effect on someone else's life. Complete and total isolationism. It's complete and total isolationism. Um, (laughs) a joke we had was, um, 
Uh, sometimes people will say, hmm, maybe you shouldn't do kink at Pride because some people around uh, might not consent to it. Uh, and mm-hmm. Semin's ideology is you shouldn't do anything anywhere because it might have a consequence for someone else's life. I hate that. Which is... Which is probably the point. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, there's a huge amount of like, wow, human industrialism destroyed the planet, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Violence, man's inhumanity to man. But it's also... He has no friends. Like, he doesn't have any real connections. He he has enough, like, manipulative power that he could probably trick people into being his genuine friends, but he's not interested. Yeah. He's huge, obnoxious tool. And, like, early, early on, I thought, okay, Ultra Senin. Uh, his body gets hijacked by this this ancient Tulpa thing, and there's a weird, funny fusion and about it and like it's two personalities or whatever but my ultimate decision was no but tulpa's not a character that's not a, that's not a that's not a real entity that that character doesn't mean anything to anybody so mm-hmm. which is why senin kind of really became the villain here um yeah it's it's that thing where it's like you could just make the final boss be some manifestation of whatever but it'll be a lot more narratively cathartic if it's if if the person who is the final boss at the end of the game is someone that they can really connect to, whether that be for good or for ill. Yeah. Um, and like there are lots of questions about what what that final confrontation would look like. But ultimately, um, and this is, you know, the bit where things get stopped getting real politic and stop getting serious and, and dip back into shonen and, and, and seinen anime tropes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is a big part of the whole thing. The, the, the joke of contract writers is that it's a, a, a fun synthesis between extremely tropey, uh, cheesy, overly sincere nonsense um, and political struggle sessions. The result is that contract writers is ultimately about of the player characters and the people around them coming together and the villain is someone who doesn't just not believe in the power of friendship or whatever but in a way that is not a, a an anime quite the same anime cliche but is founded on the same aesthetic is overwhelmingly ideologically just deep down to his bones opposed to that idea at all mm-hmm he doesn't, Senen doesn't think he needs friends. And meanwhile, yeah. I am remembering that tweet that I think, and I know Brennan shared, I know Brendan shared with me a while ago where it was like, every single form of Java, the personification of ultimate friendship is here to beat you up. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Um, the thing about Senen was figuring out exactly what kind of cruddy he was at every stage in a mm-hmm. way that served the narrative, and then making sure those all kind of fit together. Yeah. If you asked Senin, and he'd sincerely answer you, he would say that he believes that humanity deserves better than each other. He's grievance-based, but he's not a moral calculus. He doesn't think, oh, this is the right number of people who need to die to make the world a better place. He doesn't want anyone to die. He doesn't want anyone to suffer. He just thinks that total holodecky isolation and quarantine, not in like the, the medical sense, though I'm sure that had a big influence on what I was thinking about <laughs> that isolation. Yeah. But like, he always thought that he was doing a humane and kind thing for the benefit of everybody else. The single greatest dialogue exchange in the whole thing. <laughs> High part hit here. Yeah. The single greatest dialogue exchange in the whole thing. And I did not plan this at all. Sarah is a genius who played Java. Yes. 
was um, during one of those final confrontations, I, I delivered a, a real classic, a real classic bad guy line, right? I thought, all right, this is a simple cliche. He's got to say it. It's true to what he thinks. And, he, and, and Senan says, people don't know what they want. And Sarah, genius, right on the ball, says, I'm a barista and I can assure you they do. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't script something that good but it happened mm-hmm. in actual play mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you are a left-wing person in uh in the political environment that we stand in now it can often feel like you're dealing with a bunch of rubes uh a bunch of suckers that the world is idiocracying itself or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if I think that if you operate on that level, um, you've all that just th- thinking and acting on that principle is already a betrayal of, of, of the principles that you need to make a better world. I don't think you can make something. I don't think you can make a world where human dignity is paramount. If there are people you think are intrinsically undignified. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's Senan's big flaw. Um, he could have done anything with the power he accumulated. Um, he could have cured cancer, but instead he wanted to turn people into dinosaurs. <laughs> Super quick. It, it's occurred to me that I'm very glad that, that there was no, like, league of villainy for at least the five people that we have talked about so far to join. Because, one, I think it would have been hard for the contract writers to fight all five of them at the same time. But also, yeah. sometimes you see in like other in like other superhero narratives how like the like the bad guys will all unite because they all want to they all want to destroy each individual member of the Justice League, and so yeah. they agree that they'll all work together to accomplish each person's individual goal. Yeah. In this case, that fundamentally could not work because no. what they all want is, ex- except for maybe Anka, who might, I don't think it sounds like aspired to complete and total uh, world domination and destruction. It's like they all want to do this in separate ways and they're all so devoted to their own ideals yeah. and so rigid in their belief systems that... Yeah, they, they, they there would be so much infighting that they would destroy themselves and it'd be a very short campaign. <laughs> that is essentially what does happen. It's Doug's influence that leads uh, Hannah to attain the, her, her dark super form, which is what kills Marianne. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Marianne's total uh, disdain and disregard for Anka as a human being rather than as a means to an end creates it i mean it creates Anka as we know her who's a huge pain in the ass but certainly doesn't do marianne any favors hitamonji by the time the campaign happens he is actively very much dying <laughs> he's 120 years old he's 120 years old he's been he's been emotionally 17 for a, a century he finds eventually some some semblance of dignity and kindness again through his interactions with java whose idealism is basically impossible to shrug off um, mm-hmm. he gets an interesting little sad epilogue. I, I didn't want to give him a happy ending exactly because he's a real mm-hmm. piece of crap. Um, that's that's a little thing in the movie which I think I actually do want to touch on because yeah, shoot. because I think the movie the movie's got a 
big bad dumb villain, uh, Colonel Truman. He's an American general who, mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. a Great Lakes Confederacy general who decides, oh, all these power humans coming out of Australia. It's a, uh, it's like everyone's worshiping Cthulhu and turning into mutants. The shadow over Innsmouth over here. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop with this. But he's, <laughs> that feels like a very highbrow reference for him to make. Oh, his his name is um uh is uh Howard Truman. It, it's specifically he's named after Lovecraft's horrible xenophobia. Um, he's the only true man. Everyone else is a weird mutant. But uh, he's he's a plot device. The actual antagonist in that epilogue movie is Kukulamax, uh, he, future Trump, yes. Dolman's son from the future. Um, yes, because unlike Truman, who's n- in no sense. Uh, a representation of any ideology I've ever even remotely flirted with because he's a dumb, he's a dumb fascist brute. Mm-hmm. Aiden Kukulamax is motivated by a powerful resentment. He lives, he comes or allegedly comes from a ruined future. He comes from a future of where the generations before him had the power and opportunity to make a better, more sustainable world and fumbled the bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a very relatable thing to feel. Um, yes. And the future that he comes from or believes he comes from, because the plot device of the movie is that he's either actually a time traveler or he's a 3D printed robot who thinks he's a time traveler. (laughs) He is powered by this resentment. He fundamentally doesn't have any faith in the ability of anyone other than himself to change things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which is why and how... Senin's weird ghost gets his gets his ideological teeth in him. Uh, Kukulamax's sword is the Hell Caesar, <laughs> because while Ultra Senin is what everyone calls Senin after he gets his power, Senin's self-appointed name is Ultraman Caesar, mm-hmm. and it's a talking sword with a big puppet mouth, and it's Senin or like a, a cartoon caricature of Senin. Pushing, pushing Aiden to <laughs> seize power mm-hmm. and reshape the world uh, out of grievance. Yeah. And um, the arc of the film really is a, a desperate attempt to separate Aiden from this radicalizing influence and figure out what exactly is going on there. And mm-hmm. um, this culminated in sort of a, a last a last run through the villains of Contract Riders. And there were villains that mm-hmm. I didn't have, mm-hmm. have time to go into here. Uh, Papillon <laughs> had an antagonist who was, you know, all about militarization and commodity fetishism. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was Ringo, another member of the Trauma Hole gang. Yes. Who believed that mutation and, and that sort of thing was a, a fate worse than death. A purist. Yeah. And a big part of, of that was me realizing as I was telling the story that defining the hero's fail state as a world where something that had already been established as having parallels of disability and mm-hmm. neurodiversity mm-hmm. and stuff, where that was the villain's plan to make everybody like that, was not actually something I believed. Yeah. And as the campaign went on, I, I tried to figure out a more nuanced take where these mutations, the shin anthropocene, this whole thing was sort of a, was was morally neutral, and the question was, how does society and policy reflect a changing biosphere and a changing way of living lives, as opposed mm-hmm. to everything else? But Ringo never made that character development, which is why he got killed in a sewer. The film gave me an opportunity to really put a cap on some of these characters, 
uh, their mm-hmm. sort of psychic ghosts haunt the the final confrontation. Um, <laughs> Marianne and Rogier finally have a, a, a moment where Rogier gets to decide what his feelings about his mom are, mm-hmm. which Hannah mm-hmm. stole from him by killing her. Um, she stole his closure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was great. It was an incredibly cool thing. But by the end of things, I knew I had to give Brendan a shot at it. Yes. And and just he, he handled it beautifully because uh, she's just watching her own anime OP and singing sadly alone, along to it alone forever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Hita has an imaginary cabin in the woods like in Star Trek uh, Generations, where as soon as people realize that he has his own like imaginary version of Java's aunt in the cabin, everyone just is like, oh, you're a weird creep. Uh, Stay here forever. Yeah. But at the heart of it, the final heart of it wasn't Truman or even the Shadow Moon presence as this sort of embodiment of of evil or fascism or or man's inhumanity to man. The actual core of it is we can't actually time travel. We can't go back and fix things that have already happened. Mm -hmm. And when time feels like it's running out and... Uh, it feels like monumental decisions were made decades ago that shape our lives. Like so many of the other villains, mm-hmm. Aiden and Kukulamax starts as a joke. Haha, <laughs> what if future trunks? Yes. <laughs> oh, it's fun. That's a fun premise for a movie. We can shorthand everything because everyone knows what the deal is with future trunks. <laughs> but what if? And, and if you don't know what the de- deal is with future trunks, uh, listener... Um, uh, I don't know what to tell you. It's a classic. For extra context, I'm okay with explaining it. I remember enough of Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. (laughs) But it's like, future Trunks in Dragon Ball Z is time traveling back to try and avert the rise of of an incredible supervillain and... I'm using supervillain even in the context of Dragon Ball Z. Like, oh, for sure. Of, Cells of nuts. astronomical power levels. Yeah. And he is able to travel back in time to avert, um, I think it was the death of Goku. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he is able to avert that and ends up returning to his own timeline where nothing has changed because he is now in a divergent universe. Yeah. Future Trunks has it rough. I think his, his timeline's been destroyed like four times as of Super. And of course, the other thing of Future Trunks is that he's Vegeta's kid and Vegeta sucks. Uh-huh. Vegeta's great. Everyone likes Vegeta. But the entertaining part of the whole Trunks thing is is mm-hmm. watching him interact with, with uh, a dad he never knew, uh, who's also probably the worst he'd ever been. Yes. But yeah. So we were able to use Future Trunks as a shorthand for, for Kukulmax for Aiden as a character. Um, but that, that the future trunks fantasy, the back to the future fantasy, the, the kill baby Hitler fantasy, it even more than other power fantasies and other, you can't do it. It's a dead end because time travel isn't real. And even in contract writers, it might not even be that time travel is real mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of the whole joke of, I wanted, when I created Aiden, I knew that because of how future future kids stories go, I knew that Aiden had to disappear and or die in his parents' arms. Yeah. I needed to do it to make my players sad. And I figured the best way to do it, to make sure it would happen, 
regardless uh-huh. of how of how well my players performed or how much they fought, because sometimes you do have to take a little agency away, is to make it seem, oh, either he was never real and he's dissolving into stardust, or he's going back to a future that doesn't exist anymore, or or he or he doesn't exist in some other version will, so he's dissolving, or something like that. Where you get this this period of time with the character, and then it's gone forever, and, and this massive, miserable thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and Aiden really is the central antagonist of, of that final, final story. And yes, I couldn't give Aiden and as Kukulamax, I couldn't give him an easy answer. It's not even clear if he may manage to avert the ecological catastrophe that made his future Mm -hmm. because we don't even know what his future is or if he's from one. The other possibility, if he's not from the future, then what he is is a, a emotionally manipulative, unaware automaton created for self-preservation purposes by an interplanetary symbiote. Like, those are the two things he could be. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't get to have a beautiful, perfect ending where he gets what he wants because we don't get a magic ending where we go back and change, I don't know, a Bush v. Gore or something. That's not in our power. But what he and the other characters do get is a moment of connection, an opportunity to assess the world around them and decide where to go from there. Um, Not out of resentment or anything like that, but just take what what tools we have, fight against the the forces that are incompatible with human dignity and make some kind of future, whatever that might be, because it's coming. If we'd recorded this a month ago, I think this would have been less dour. <laughs> yeah. In an effort to make things less dour, yeah. um, what I want to ask then is like, how do you think that having, I'm going to say, these villains with extremely crystallized ideologies, like how do you think having these villains to be in opposition to helped the players of contract writers when it came to like building their characters and stuff. Well, I think that it's, you should always know your enemy in storytelling or in real life. Um, you can't always gotcha people. You can't win just through pointing out hypocrisy, but, um, Mm -hmm. the best way to figure out what you stand for is to figure out what you don't. Process of elimination. Yeah. Again, with, with that incredible Java line, I'm a barista, that sort of thing. Those are character moments, right, that don't exist without a villain whose ideology and motivations are well enough established that you can name their sin. Mm-hmm. So at every step when I'm doing these, was, was establishing and th- fleshing out and, and figuring out these bad guys... My goal was always, as a GM in general, was what is the most interesting predicament, physical, moral, emotional, to put these characters through, provided, of course, that my players are, you know, down for exploring any any given such themes. One of the great successes of Contract Riders, the thing that made it possible to be as good and as as lasting as it was, was a group of players who was just so completely on the same page and who communicated so well about their thematic interests and their thematic no no ways and things like that, their red cards, um, that I always felt like I had the leeway to push 
uh, and get the right kind of push back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Marianne gave uh, Roger an opportunity to decide what family really and connection really meant to him. Uh, mm-hmm. Senin gives Sean a character who, even before Senin got involved, self-isolated on the basis of, of knowing better and having to hold and having to shoulder suffering for other people. And that's a big thing. Ultra Senin is that too, because it's Ultraman is this world changing Messiah figure, which if you listen to the Dolan cast and the ultra Catholicism stuff is just in, insanely <laughs> dense. I can't get into it. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Scrug, uh, a major antagonist in, in Mari's storytelling. And um, yes. also Jerry, who are these antagonistic figures in her story to, storyline were really important to building out like how do these characters exist and and their powers and influence how do they exist in relation to society papillon is both a social media influencer but also is in possession of tremendous both social and like military power as as a contract writer and as as and as a a a celebrity um Mm -hmm. it's like it's like you know MCU, whatever. It, it's like how Iron Man is, is a massive celebrity in those things, in addition to having tremendous physical might. In addition to being, to being an arms dealer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, where I mean, arms dealer is just ha- one way of expressing, oh, this person has power over people, power over life and death, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hidemonji as this, as the original, as far as anyone really knows, superhero, as this original contract writer, mm-hmm. is obviously a major, you know hero and 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 symbol for java for parker and like everyone knew going into the campaign that parker versus the common rider was inevitably going to be this major ideological conflict but what was really incredible was watching how sarah took that and instead of saying oh the common rider and parker are going to have a big fight and whoever punches harder is right it was instead <laughs> a, a, a real development of Parker's character over a period of time where Parker never forgives the common Rider, mm-hmm. never absolves them or anybody. The, Parker is extremely critical, of, even through the, the end of the campaign, of Roger. But the belief in human life, right? Mm-hmm. Parker gets it, I think. Yes. I think that when Parker hears the phrase, human life is more important than peace and justice... They interpret mm-hmm. it better than even Sawatari meant when, when she said it. <laughs> Which is that both revenge and politeness, both decorum and justice and carceral society, all these things, they, you can't put any of those things ahead of human life. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Parker recognizes Hidemonji as someone deprived of human life. <laughs> I mean... I feel like a lot of the villains are deprived of human life. Yeah. Senin is a no friends tool. <laughs> yeah. Um, human life being is more important than peace and justice is such a loaded thing. Common Rider specifically has a long history of interrogating what it means when it says its heroes fight for justice. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a thing that's unique to one particular media franchise. The question of what defines a just society has always been you know, it's the center of, of, of philosophy. And it will always be. And it always will be. Because, <laughs> always, because always, always. Senate isn't going to get his way. People are going to impact other people's lives in undesirable, unpredictable ways for as long as human <laughs> beings exist. If Senan really wanted to not impact anyone else's life ever, he should have not, he should have done 
nothing that he did in the series. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But he, he justified his, his methodology by saying, ah, but in the end, everyone's going to have, I'm going to make anime real uh, and no one will ever have to talk to anyone else. And then, like, Dolman, again, this tendency towards being a crypt, being isolated. Roger's fraught relationship with family and connection. Uh, Parker's idealism being tested and then vindicated. Mm-hmm. Um, Mari's connection to, to ordinary people, her connection to how, how narratives are constructed. And then Hannah... I don't want to overspeak, right? The, the, Hannah is Joe's character, but I think that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that it is fair to say that the character um, has a has much like Hitamonji, much like these other characters, a very ready is very ready to disregard her own well being and happiness. And mm-hmm. Doug says, "You should be king because you are willing to do this. You are willing to suffer. Suffering builds character. That makes you." just and over the course of the campaign hannah suffers and visits suffering onto others in pursuit of yes. this sort of justice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it isn't until well towards the end of the story that she discovers that she realizes and comes to an understanding about how to be just to yourself how to do right by yourself, how to care for yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to value doing it because when Doug doesn't care for himself, he fossilizes. He becomes, he becomes, he, his, his <laughs> berserk form is coelacanth themed. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Just, com- just a, a living record of, of the dead of, of completely detached from the world around this living anomaly that, doesn't have a place that's fathoms deep in the dark. And it's it's through the human connections that Hannah develops with the player characters and with the people in, in her character's life it, that eventually, you know, when Senin's defeated, when Truman and the Shadow Moon Presence are defeated in the film, what the characters are on is a collision course with human life. And that was important to me because... You can do super heroics and you can do toyetic action sequences and you can have great one-liners and whatever. But ultimately, um, Contract Riders was about what is being human in a, in a system that pushes you not to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, or a system that describes what you are as not human. Tries to define the terms on which you get to be alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, a system where... People mortgage their livelihoods and their biology for labor, a system where, uh, and for civil service, a system where um, emergent mutations and evolutionary schema are used alternatingly as a basis for a master race theology or discrimination, a system where Mm -hmm. uh, a society that's not able to reckon with, that is not prepared to reckon with uh, it's the externalities it forces or the long-term consequences and sustainability. A system where being human feels like, feels unsustainable. And the villains of contract writers, when faced with that, with that system and with that fate, decide 
I'm going to do, make everything else easier by changing, by narrowing my definition of human to either exclude myself or exclude other people. Which again, in a world where it seems the only solution to mass suffering is to be inhumane in turn to other people, it can be very convenient to exclude yourself or others from a definition of humanity. Mm-hmm. The beauty of, uh, I think, of the things that my other players did with, you know, some setup from me in Contract Riders was that each of them found a different way to explore those themes and bring their characters forward into the future and tell interesting stories that were satisfying and cathartic on those themes of how do you live a human life in an inhuman world? Mm-hmm. You do your best. You do your best and you connect with other people and you... And I think, I think Contract Riders was... I mean, someday I'll have enough ideas in my head to run a campaign again. <laughs> um, but uh, Contract Riders is... Nothing's going to be like that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, all I can say to anyone listening to this who's told campaigns together or who's struggled to get a campaign off the ground, who's had issues with GMing or playing a character or stuff like that is it's not easy. These are, you know, the stuff like Critical Role or Adventure Zone or whatever. These are the this deck is stacking their favor and even then they screw it up. These are mm-hmm. these are. Telling these kinds of stories with your friends is always going to have road bumps. It's never going to be, you know, this perfect thing. But what you put yeah. into it, you can get out of it. And if and if mm-hmm. you're not confident or have had bad luck with tabletop games or storytelling or writing of your own, to keep at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Contract writers sort of came out of the ashes of a campaign with a completely different group of people that ended on bad terms. Um that these are these characters that all the guests here come on and who matter so much to the people who who listen to and and guest on way, uh, home for wayward uh, OCs. Mm-hmm. That's what human life is about. Human life is about connecting with other people, telling stories, and providing for each other. And that's um. And I don't know if that's what I thought when I went <laughs> into. I don't know if that's what I thought when I went into contract writers, but it's what I got out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I hope that's what other people get out of it, uh, out of out of the little scraps of contract writers that make their way out onto the internet in meme form or in podcasts or in pixel art or uh, horrible video edits that I made with the Big Bang Theory theme song. <laughs> um, I think that was very well said. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> I don't know if it was well said or just long-winded. <laughs> I think it was well said and well-intentioned. <laughs> I'll take that. And uh, so then this is a good place for me to ask the last question of today, which is, why do you love Marianne and Doug and Senan and Anka and the Common Rider and Aiden slash Kukula Max? <laughs> because they're all terrible. And they're terrible because of decisions <laughs> I made. And I got to be terrible with them in a little sandbox, which is sort of a Senan idea, where I didn't actually, where I could be obnoxious and explore these dark ideas without hurting anybody. <laughs> and um, you got to have those bad ideas be debunked and, by, and Lord, and you know, kicked in, a, kicked in a quarry until they exploded. <laughs> which is my advice to dealing with most bad ideas. 
God, if only. If only. Uh, be the... Oh, this is an awful joke. This is an awful joke. Brace yourselves. Be the henshin you want to see in the world. <laughs> oh, 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 God. Actually, this, mm, I was going to say to cut that, but no, everyone gets to know my shame. No, I, I think that's fun. Yeah. The, um, but yeah, I, I, I love these characters because they gave me a chance to fle- do great theater work with my friends. It gave me a chance to hone in on what I believe and what I want to do in the real world uh, during a time when that's when thinking about that stuff and making decisions is really important. And it, and of course, like everything else about contract writers, it got me through a period of time that was tremendously isolating and scary and mm-hmm. demanding. Um, and I made really incredible friends. That's why Anka's the best character in contract writers. <laughs> uh, I've said it. I'm the GMs. Uh, everyone was like, oh, 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 Park, oh, Park is the protagonist of contract writers. Oh, Dolman's the best character in TTRPGs. No, it's Anka. It's Anka. You all have to deal with it. It's canon now. I said it. When, uh, when everyone listens to this podcast in some number of weeks, you'll know. Contract writers, players, if you wish to discuss this with Jack, I believe you have your own Discord, and if you're going to be posting about it in the replies to this tweet on Twitter, uh, please remember to untag the person who posted the original comment. Uh, no, uh, I'm saying bully Don't that bully order. me, bully Jack. <laughs> leave, leave, every, leave everyone in the tags. Everyone needs to know uh, so that I can prove uh, rigorously through academic through academic induction that Anka's the best contract writer's character. Oh, 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 sorry. The most important thing about Anka is actually that she's a gamer. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I made that clear. Anka, Anka's a, an eSport. <laughs> um, yes. Oh, my. So yeah. she and Mari should be friends is what I'm hearing. Oh, uh, the, the, Amari beat her at a fighting game tournament. Uh, and the degree of, of just seething misery that resulted is very funny. This is a real thing that actually happened in the campaign. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 huh. the last word on contract writers. There have been many last words on contract writers. There have been entire short novellas written that are the last word on contract writers. This is the actual last word on contract writers. Anka is S tier. <laughs> and I will take your word for it. Yeah. So thank you so much, Jack, for coming on Wayward today to talk about all of the villains of contract writers and also the campaign as a whole, because I loved getting to have this retrospective on y'all's campaign. Yeah. Uh, retrospectives are, are what the wider world gets to see out of this. We made a little private thing and decided the parts of it we wanted to share. Yes. <sighs> so, uh, then this is the part where everyone gets to know where would you like to be found on the internet? And what do you have that you would like to shout out and or promote? Okay. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Kuga underscore gaming. That's Kuga with two U's and gaming with an E, um, which is the correct way to spell it. The um, I'm also on at red hyphen requiem on itch, which is where you can find uh, a handful of small hacks, including the rules for the fate hack that contract writers was running. And I am working slowly on a mm-hmm. Powered by the Apocalypse writer game called Masqueraders. Nice. It's in extremely early development stages and I stalled out for a while, but if you're interested in reading the closed alpha test uh, and providing your thoughts, you can reach out to me via Twitter DMs or in the comments on my Itch.io page. Um, 
other than that, if you if you like Anka are a gamer who enjoys gaming, uh, you should <laughs> uh, you should watch uh, House of Three Thousands Smash Brothers streams every Wednesday. Uh, it's a it's the only video game tournament worth watching because it's run uh, by the extremely cool and queer positive New York City fighting game community. Oh, nice. Um, and sometimes I'm on stream there and you can watch me lose. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the, and uh, yeah, the, those are the things, those are the things I want to plug. Oh, Good. and uh, and whenever it arrives in theaters in your locale, see Shin Ultraman. Okay. Yeah. Every, that, that, that's for everybody. Shin Ultraman, first movie to make an old trillion dollars. Uh, that joke will be okay. Now more. this isn't a bit. <laughs> this is not a bit. This is this is it, what it was. It was the number one movie in Japan. Um, it's Hideki Anno, uh, and everyone should see it when it happens. Uh, it's coming to New York next month. Well, later this month on like the twenty third or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got tickets for it today uh, at the mm-hmm. New York Asian Film Festival. It's going to be uh, our friend Sam because he's in Japan. He's seen it wholeheartedly recommended everyone go see shin ultraman and shin godzilla which are really good movies that are also about institutions uh struggling mm-hmm. to adapt to massive changes in what's possible uh and the limits and necessities of uh both collective and individual action nice yeah the Home for Weirdo Seas is a part of the Corner Podcast Network. We can be found through Acast and your local podcasting platform of choice. Our theme song is Violet by Pottington Bear, courtesy of the Free Music Archives. May they rest in peace. We can be reached at waywardocpod at gmail.com or at waywardocpod on Twitter. This podcast is partly recorded on the ancestral lands of the Kiakapui, Ka, Osage, and the Ocheti Shukaun Oyate. If you would like to talk about Wayward or the other Corner Podcast Network shows, we have our own Discord server. Uh, there should be a permit invite on the Twitter accounts, but if it's not there, just ask one of us and we can get you the invite. Uh, and I am always looking for guests to talk about their original characters, so if you or someone you know would like to talk about your OC on the show, uh, feel free to drop me an email, or I have a Google form, uh, which is the pinned tweet on the Twitter account, that basically goes over stuff like availability and what your character is about, that kind of a thing. And as with all podcasts, it is always super helpful if you can subscribe and rate us on your listening platform of choice, because it helps us to find a wider audience and to brighten more people's days. Also, uh, the next episode is going to be the 100th episode of Wayward, and I would appreciate it if you uh, left a review or recommended uh, Wayward to a friend. And if if you are outside of the United States, uh, if you send me a if you send me a picture of your review, perhaps I will read it on air for the hundredth episode because <laughs> I hope I hope that people like my podcast. <laughs> I like your podcast. So thank you all for listening. This has been Home for Red OCs, and we hope you enjoyed your stay. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. I, I like your podcast. Thank you. I'm glad you like my podcast. <laughs> Maybe now we'll do a live, laugh, love of be the henshin you want to see in the world. <laughs> oh, Christ. Like a, a little a little needle point. Oh, this stinks. 
Oh, I've done something terrible. All the, all the good I, I brought I never the- said it would be needlepoint. I said live, laugh, love. I'm talking brush script, man. Oh, oh I think that might be worse. <laughs> oh. oh, no. I've incurred psychic damage upon the guest of Wayward. Uh-oh. That's my job. Oh, how the turntables... Wanna go on an adventure? <laughs> this is quite enough adventure for me, please. No. I left Bob outside to work on the solar panel, so nothing is wrong. Just wanted to communicate. Yeah, that panel, I'm inside. Oh, okay. So, uh, no one, no one else is uh, having this reaction. No, I, I, I guess no one else would because uh, no one else was outside building a shelter. <laughs> The captain uh, needed some alone time. What do you mean? She was getting a bit aggressive in our conversation, and then then she burst into what I'm told are called tears. Thank you, Beatrix. Please don't murder Bartholomew. I can't guarantee that, Beatrix, but check back in about two minutes. Civilized, an improvised dark comedy sci-fi podcast. Visit civilizedpod.com. We're not lost. I'm not, not going to say we're, we're lost. Not lost. We're not lost. We're not lost. <laughs> we're not lost, Captain. Maybe we don't know where we are. <laughs>